This is Grace Cho, from Entrepreneur's Creative Careers Podcast. Today we're talking to Danny Forster. Danny Forster is an architect, speaker, TV host, and producer, and an expert on design and the built environment. As the principal of Danny Forster and Architecture, Danny directs projects whose ingenuity and scope push the industry toward a smarter future. From building the world's tallest modular hotel in New York City, to partnering with Berkshire Hathaway, MyTech Incorporated, to create a transformative nationwide modular construction platform. His television projects, including Build It Bigger, which he hosted for seven seasons, and the Emmy Award-winning Rising, Rebuilding Ground Zero, which he co-produced with Steven Spielberg, explore how buildings relate to and express people, culture, and history. Given his talent for explicating design concepts and changing the way people think about architecture, Danny is a sought-after professor and a public speaker around the world at global construction conferences, graduate courses at Harvard, and TED Talks, and beyond. Danny, welcome. It's great to speak with you today. I'm really excited to hear about uh, your career and your life. So thank you for making the time to do this. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to speak with you. So the first question is, I usually ask, where did you go to school and what did you study? I went to Wesleyan University in Connecticut, small liberal arts college. I studied art history with a concentration in architectural theory, which is a bizarre and very, very myopic focus. And that's, I guess, the beauty of liberal arts. And I, uh, I graduated in 1999. And then I got my master's in architecture at Harvard University's Graduate School of Design. And I graduated, I think, in 2006 and have been doing TV and, and practicing architecture in, in some in various capacities, more or less, ever since. Obviously, you're an overachiever. You've done a lot of, you've done very well in school. What drew you into this particular field? Oh, man, I hate to say it, but, you know, unlike the kid who's taking like chemistry in high school because he or she knows they want to be a radiologist, I uh, I didn't have that kind of clarity at all. And I, I mean, I, in a lot of ways, I think of my career as this sort of random assemblage of interests that happen to have coalesced into an income generating activity. But it's not like I had a clear line to architecture or TV, for that matter. Uh, it's not like I was in plays in high school. It's not like I was sketching in a book as a kid. You know, frankly, most people thought I'd be a lawyer because of the way I talked and communicated. I was like a state champion debater in high school and did college debate as well. And mm. definitely always had a facility and an ease with language and communication. But I, I frankly got into art history or got into sort of the study of architecture or the study of art, I think because I was just a bad student in high school and I had a hard time connecting to I mean, take history for that matter, just to like read a history book or just read anything and to lock into the content enough that I could really connect to the material. And there was one of those, you know, those great teachers that there's not enough of them, but those amazing teachers in high school that grab you and talk to you in a certain way. And I happened to have an art history teacher and I took art history really randomly, didn't really, I think it was because of the teacher more than the content. And she was able to tell incredibly compelling stories about cities and places through the lens of buildings. Like you could see a building and you could understand the politics or you could understand the context. And the example I often give is that she gave this very beautiful diagrammatic comparison between a Gothic church, which we've all been to if we've traveled through Europe, and, and a Romanesque church, those kind of low slung, heavy, kind of darker churches that are a little earlier 
uh, in like the 14th century located in the suburbs, basically outside of cities. And she made this point that in Gothic churches, you would walk in and the intent was it was supposed to be the single largest space you'd ever walked into because you lived in some terrible, crappy apartment in Paris and there was no plumbing or running water and everything stunk and it was terrible. And you walked into this main worship hall in a Gothic church and you could in that moment believe in the eternal, that God was real. And the specific method by which that theological epiphany would happen to you was that you would see these glass walls. They were practically paper thin and they were somehow holding up this roof, magically defying gravity. And she would then explain that those things called flying buttresses, which is the structural solution that allows churches to have basically all of the weight of the roof supported on the outside of the building, it produced this theatrical slash theological moment when you walked into it. And in that moment, I have to say, like that building that she described, that space, that experience represented the coalescing of economic, sociology, theology, divinity, politics, all right there. Like the shape of the building had meaning. I wasn't memorizing it to say Romanesque looks like this and Gothic looks like that, but I understood the the language and the story behind it. And that was a gateway in for me. And it's not that I necessarily even loved buildings at that point in time, but I loved the feeling of understanding. And I loved the feeling of having that kind of almost like I could put on x-ray glasses or 3D glasses and I could see history this way in a different way. And so I kind of just continued doing that through college, studying art history and continuing to, to love the, the, the capacity to understand stories through, through the lens of physical objects. And it's not that I knew I wanted to be an architect. Frankly, I graduated college and didn't know what to do. I did a startup for a while. I worked in real estate for a while. And so I guess to very long-windedly answer your original question, I ended up applying to architecture school because I had done a startup and, and sort of sold it and sort of wrapped up that process and wasn't quite sure what to do next. And, uh, and I was actually performing stand-up comedy in the evenings, not particularly effectively. Stand-up comedy. Now that's shocking. Yeah, I, I kind of always enjoyed it. And, uh, and I was funny. And uh, I think the problem was, and this is something that I, I think I learned a lot about through that experience, was that because it was a sort of oblique activity, certainly not the thing that I thought one should be doing. I think my parents certainly as medical professionals and immigrants definitely didn't think I should be doing. There was a sense that I should be uh, either excellent at it or quit. And as a result, I would perform. I had some decent material, five to seven minutes, and it would kill most nights. But I would never test out new material because, God forbid, I went up there and failed. But that's required to get better, and it's required to grow as an artist. I didn't have the conviction or the courage yet to be an artist. So I kind of did it for a while and was kind of successful, but didn't grow because I wasn't writing new material. So I, I sort of put that down. Although, you know, that shows up later in my narrative because, you know, performing became a surprising part of my career. But but yeah, I applied to architecture school because I was like, well, what should I do? I love this stuff. I, I kind of like business. Architecture, I thought, and this is the embarrassing reality, is not knowing almost nothing about the profession. I'd never worked in architecture, didn't really know architects, hadn't worked in an architecture firm. You know, based upon, let's be honest, a lot of like uh, delusion and a bit of white privilege, I like applied to a bunch of architecture schools and got into every single fancy one that existed. It was a real gift in some respects, but it was amazing, I, you know. Harvard, Yale, Columbia, all of them, UPenn, et cetera. And I ended up going to Harvard because even though it looked like a place that was probably not the best for my mental health, very intense, very competitive, very hardcore, growing up in the household I did, the idea of saying no to Harvard was something that I don't think was an option. And so I went. And that's how I kind of began my journey, at least, in becoming a designer, becoming an architect. Oh, what a great story. I Thank you for sharing that. Do you remember the teacher's name who inspired you with all those yeah. stories? Absolutely. Carol DeVito, Mrs. DeVito. And I'm still in touch with her. 
I was going to say, did you ever go back to her and tell her that, that she had such an impact on your life? Yeah, a thousand percent. I had a nice opportunity wow. to, to actually take her down to the World Trade Center to look at one of one of my first buildings. And Oh, what a gift. Yeah, no, no, it's definitely, you know. And then there's another professor, a guy named Joe Siri, who is deeply important in, in helping me kind of tell stories. And frankly, he was he would teach an architecture history class, and his classes were so compelling the way he told stories that when I later got into television and became, in a sense, a kind of an architectural storyteller, making documentaries about buildings, I leaned super heavily on the format and the style of storytelling that he did. He taught me in college. So I was gifted with you know two very compelling educators that had a, a profound impact on how I see the world. I love that story because uh, it's amazing what these small moments in life, what seemingly are small moments at the time, end up forming a future. Yeah, I think especially for kids who don't have that clarity. You know, it was a it was a point of of kind of great anxiety for me. Like my dad was a neurologist, his grandfather was a neurologist, and I think it was just clear to him that his dad did it, he did it, and the brain was fascinating. And he always used to say that it's great to be a doctor, you always have job security, but that there was like a a, a simplicity and a clarity, and and there's that generational thing. I think they say like you know people are doctors and lawyers, so their kids can be artists, and people are artists, so their kids can be doctors and lawyers. Like sort of skips a generation. And I was gifted with them. With the ability to think laterally, which is a, a true gift, but if not applied well, you do really need those Carol DeVitos in the world to help find those areas of interest. And without those moments, I don't know what I'd be doing today. But I would also say it's paired with an openness. Like the way I ended up doing television was that I was, in a lot of respects, very exhausted from graduate school and kind of out of ideas in a lot of ways. Just three years at Harvard, really just hammering away their point of view, their perspective, their methodology. I had forgotten why I got into architecture to begin with to the degree that I ended up answering an ad on Craigslist and sending in a video, which is, you know, as random and slightly desperate a thing as one can do. And that ended up turning into a decade long career in television. And as silly as that sounds, it does require a certain degree of openness with your discontent to have those opportunities. Because if I just put my nose to the grindstone and just said, I'm going to make this career in architecture work, I may be sitting here today working at someone's firm, relatively unhappy and modestly successful. But I'm, I'm glad that I was able to be open to my discomfort with what I was doing to allow me to explore opportunities that weren't necessarily on the same path. And, and in a sense, I found my way kind of back to a sort of state of normalcy where I get to do both. And, uh, and I'm really happy with that. But it required a degree of, of <laughs> I'd say, depression and courage to, to allow me to, to explore those opportunities. Depression and courage. It's oftentimes those two words don't usually fit together, but you said it beautifully. What part of this journey has surprised you when you look back at all the accomplishments that you've already had? I've been reflecting a lot on this right now because our firm is in a, you know, we're in a really beautiful place where we're at the point where we get to do work that we care about. We are generally speaking sought after by clients or developers who want an aspect of our voice in the work. So we get to, by the grace of God, elevate our work beyond just being a technician or an executor. And we're also getting to explore some ideas that go beyond just doing a project. Like if I use the example of a physician, you know, my father is a neurologist. He was not a a researcher. He worked on patients. You know, his job was to be a master diagnostician and solve problems and heal people one patient at a time. And he was amazing at it. And there's a world in which we could attack architecture one project at a time and, and do good work and do the best that we can within the confines of the system in which we find ourselves. We, I think, are fortunate right now that we're getting to do that work one project at a time, but we're also able to work at a systems level, at an industry level. We're beginning to get to work to say like, 
yeah, it's cool to design these buildings and it's interesting and exciting, but there are some infrastructural inefficiencies that suck, that limit our ability to do the work that we want to do, to limit our ability to be as effective as we want to be. So what can we do to think about and to explore solutions that will have an impact at a much broader scale, at the scale of architecture and construction and engineering? And that's where we're, we're doing this work right now with, with our partnership with MyTech, a Berkshire Hathaway company, in developing a kind of a, a global modular system, a different way to build, uh, a different approach to how you design buildings, but really fundamentally different, a different approach to how you build buildings. And as I reflect on this moment, I'm very, very grateful that our work right now, that the kind of culture of our practice and the, and the culture of my career currently touches both those, we'll call them kind of time scales of work, the sort of quotidian, semi-rapid day-to-day project-to-project work and the multi-year super long-standing, protracted intellectual R&D effort of working at an industry scale. So it's a bit like getting to be a doctor who does both diagnostic work as well as research work, which is not usually the case. You typically have to pick a lane. Mm. I'm really happy that that's where we find ourselves. And to be frankly very direct, it also has an impact on the financial cadence of our practice as well, which is really interesting. It's great not to be exclusively engaged in the hunt for the next project. You know, we've been very blessed by having this kind of media and R&D arm of our business that we have work that involves making films and we have work that involves consulting and R&D and innovation work and, and this kind of development work that we do that really changes the landscape of our practice. And as a result, changes the landscape of my life because it means that we are just not at the mercy of any given client. And we get to think in time scales that I think are different from a traditional practice. And for that, I'm I'm so eternally grateful because that wasn't a way that I wanted to live. It's not the way I wanted to run my practice or my business. And I feel very fortunate that we've kind of liberated our practice from those conventional confines. What were the key moves that you made that allowed you to get you to this, to this point? I think acknowledging our differences were really important. By that, I mean, like the fact that I made television for a lot of years about architecture and, you know, at a certain point, that television show, which for your audience, if you don't know, it was called Build It Bigger. It was on the Discovery Channel for like seven seasons. And we did zillions of episodes, hour long documentaries, looking at the most amazing architectural engineering feats all around the world that went on for a period of time. And and then that show stopped being in full time production. And while I was doing other TV things, that main apparatus of my television career was over or stopped anyway. And there's a world in which I could say, okay, now it's time to do architecture. That's certainly an approach to take to your career. I think for me, I never wanted to let go of some of these creative expressions that scratch certain itches. Like architecture scratches an itch. It's very cerebral. It's very intense. It's very rigorous. It's very iterative. Television is different. There are similarities, but it works at a different cadence, a different time scale, a different aspect of your brain. So when the show was over, I wasn't committed to just letting go of that. I wanted to still make films and explore that kind of work. And so we found ourselves partnering with real estate developers to do like really, really beautiful architecture documentaries about buildings. Or we would get hired by companies like KPMG or Fannie Mae when they were investing half a billion dollars in a new structure and they needed help understanding how to talk about those buildings. What did it mean to to spend this kind of money to, to, to reorganize their business, to work differently? What does it mean to have signature architecture as part of their business. And we were able to kind of translate the buildings for them, give the buildings meaning and let them infuse that into their culture. That was a really cool bridge from all of the TV work that we did into a different layer of that kind of work. It just meant that we expanded the offerings of our practice. And in terms of the the innovation, the R&D work that we do, you know, I think that comes out of the fact that a lot of great architects, and this is 
actually a terrible thing about architecture business model, but a lot of times we don't want to do the same thing over and over again. There is a spirit in great architecture of innovation. You want to push it with every project, right? That's amazing. Super fun. Super badass. Terrible for the bottom line, right? Because you get you get no efficiencies if everything's innovation, everything's R&D. So you develop great muscles, right. but it's really awful for the practice. So how can we find a way to take that spirit of innovation, but apply it not exclusively to a one project per project basis, but how do we take that innovation frankly, monetize it and apply it to someone who can use it in a broader scenario. And that's where some of this work we do with MyTech slash Berkshire Hathaway has become so useful because so many architecture firms have just an enormous wealth of R&D innovation and ideas inside of their practices, but it dies on the vine because the next client may not be ready to ingest that, those innovative ideas. So this MyTech uh, project, tell us a little bit more how it how it started, what you're doing, what your goal is. Yeah, I'm, I'm for sure. To learn more about that. Well, MyTech is is an amazing company. They are a company with a number of different offerings, but primarily they deal with offsite manufacturing, and and their primary output is the technology that support the creation of roof trusses. So basically, mass producing and rapidly designing the trusses that really dot the skyline of all residential neighborhoods in America. If you see a pitched roof, right, a triangular roof somewhere where a home builder is building it, the geometry, the, 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 the fabrication, the design of those trusses is done by MyTech. So they're very invested in off-site fabrication. They're very invested in how do you change cities by enhancing the capacities of those building them through off-site fabrication. That's their DNA. Our DNA had been working in architecture, trying to find a better way to make our buildings because we didn't want to continue to design great buildings and have them built poorly. And that led us to modular. That led us to thinking about manufacturing technologies as a way to increase building efficiencies and to increase the quality of the buildings. And ultimately, we hope over time, decrease the cost of buildings. And there was just a, a bit of a synergy where MyTech was already you know, an industry leader in this space, but eager to explore modular further because they believed it was the future. And there was us as a firm at the kind of cutting edge of this work and eager to find a partner to kind of take so much of our thinking and apply it not just to the next project, but the next thousand projects. And so we forged a uh, strategic partnership with them about two years ago. And it's a multi-year relationship where you know almost half of my firm is full-time engaged in this work. But we are working uh, side by side with MyTech to develop a modular solution, develop a, a better, faster way to build buildings using offsite prefabrication, developing software, developing facade systems, developing structural cages, developing the business model, the manufacturing model, you know, really just looking at it, not just from a one or two solutions, but really holistically looking at the entire process and designing a better way through. And that's what we've been doing. And we're extremely engaged in this work. It's some of the most exciting work in my career. It's working. That's the amazing thing. And the other thing I would mention is being in partnership with someone like MyTech with the resources and the long-term vision, it means we really can invest the right amount of time and effort in R&D and not race to commercialization, not be seduced by the gold rush, not throw up a quick project because you'll get press and then ultimately fail on the project. We're actually taking our time to do it right. And that's an opportunity that you know so often you don't get on regular architecture projects because the budgetary requirements, the lending requirements, the schedule requirements of your client compress a lot of that lateral thinking. So that's part of what we're up to right now. And it and it's a real different expression of the design thinking that we normally do. And so it's it's wild. Congratulations on that. That that whole diversification of the various focuses is really critical to your success. It's allowed you to do things 
that others can't. Yeah, and and I want to I want to couch that in saying like maybe there aren't a lot of architects who can host TV shows. You know, I'll, I'll take that mantle. That's fine. But there are a ton of architects who have incredible, innovative ideas about how to build better, how to create better cities, better processes, how to be more efficient. But we are unfortunately constrained because there isn't a well-funded R and D apparatus to support that kind of work. If there is, it's pretty modest. And again, if you're if you are constrained by or enabled by the largesse of your clients, and the majority of your clients are trying to build buildings for profit, that is not a great space for innovative work. You can try and squeeze it in, but the reality is, and this has been my experience, many of our past projects, that kind of innovative work we're doing, we're sneaking that into the project. We're not getting paid for mm. it, right? We're making the project successful for our developer clients for the most part, but really we're spinning off all that R&D work kind of inside the project. That's why I think you don't see, I mean, frankly, look, you've seen like, I have the iPhone 14, right? Almost a new, a new version of the iPhone every single year. And the amount of innovation you see in our architecture, engineering, and construction is pretty modest. You know, we still build houses the same way. We still kind of build buildings the same way we have for the last hundred years. So I think that's, it's, it's just the reality that, that architecture, construction, engineering, while highly sophisticated, does not have the kind of iterative innovation you'd like to see. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit. The, you, the, sure. the, the number of accomplishments that you've had in your, what I consider very, still a very young life, it's a dizzying list of the incredible things that you've done. Which one can you identify with the most? That's a tough question I know for you to answer, but when you describe yourself, how do you describe yourself? Are you an architect first that does all these other things or how do you look at your life? Yeah, <laughs> it's a really hard question. It's funny, when I, was, when I was very, very busy doing lots of TV, I liked to remind everyone that I, that I did architecture as if doing TV alone was somehow delegitimizing of, of all my education and all my training. And now that I do primarily architecture with, like, with a lesser percentage of film work, I try and remind people that I, that I make TV and film. So I don't know. I mean, I've, I guess I call myself, I'm, look, I'm legally an architect, right? I, I stamp drawings and are registered in the state of New York and all that. And I'm very passionate about our practice and the work that we do. But I do want to be honest about the fact that I'm also like very excited when I get to perform. And I'm very excited when I get to do R&D work. And I'm very excited when I get to make a short film or a documentary. I love architecture. I have come to experience the expression, the practical application of the career to be at times limiting, not limiting because of the creative expression, limiting because of the, you know, the blocking and tackling, the bureaucratic realities, the basics of having to cities and codes and budgets and, and ownership silliness and legal issues. You know, I spend more time looking at contracts than I do looking at floor plans. And you don't know that going into it. And maybe this wouldn't be the case if I didn't own the practice and have to run the practice in that way. But so I guess for me, because I'm fairly intolerant of things that don't excite me, I've had to hang on to these other aspects of my creative and my business life because I think, frankly, I just wouldn't be happy otherwise. Mm-hmm. It's certainly made for a more complicated existence, but I don't think there's an alternative model that would have worked for, let's call it my, my mental well-being. Mm-hmm. What I hear when I hear you speak is you're looking for personal excitement and satisfaction, of course. But you're also looking for a purpose, purpose to doing, you know, what's what, how does this impact on a greater scale? That's what I find most intriguing, what you do. Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at certain careers, like if one goes into architecture, they are not seeking to retire early with a boat. <laughs> like that is not in the cards for you. I mean, it's maybe in the cards for you, but it's certainly statistically not very likely. And so if you can say on day one, 
the economic logic of this enterprise is a little bit compromised. You know, the cost of entry is extremely high. You know, we struggle always and think we're doing, we're very successful now, which is great, but it has obviously was challenging for a lot of years building the practice. But if if you go into the endeavor, knowing that that early retirement, that, you know, just buying shiny things is not going to be the end goal. It's got to be something else. Okay, cool. Maybe it's the joy of design. Okay, fine. But sometimes you don't get to design everything you want to do. Sometimes you have intransigent clients. Sometimes you have banal projects. Sometimes you have dips in the economy that limit the work you're doing. COVID happened and I had four very, very exciting projects, big hotels we've been working on for five plus years, all of which went on the shelf in a matter of weeks. Mm. Half a billion dollars worth of construction vanished in three weeks, right? Mm. Terrible. And that's a that's an external circumstance out of my control, which is limiting the joy that I theoretically get from the creative creation of those projects. So for me, I think to your comment about purpose, if the project does not transcend its function, and I'll say that again, because I think it's really the core to what we do. If the meaning of the work that we're doing does not transcend its function, meaning a hotel, a house, a library, whatever it is, then I don't know if we're practicing architecture. I think we're just making buildings. Because for me, architecture with a capital A represents a, a project that can, rep- that can address the needs of the building, but also do something broader than that, have meaning, whether that means positively impacting the community, having some sort of impact at an urban scale, having some impact environmentally, or having some impact in terms of the technology that you've invented something in the building. I'm often reminded of this incredible anecdote that an architect who passed away recently, Harry Cobb, who was the managing partner of Pay Cobb Freed, that was I.M. Pay's firm. This guy did the Hancock Tower. He's an amazing architect. He kind of plucked me out of graduate school and, and hired me for my first job at his firm. And he described this idea. He built a lot of skyscrapers. He said, skyscrapers have to be good citizens. And what he meant was that the fancy lawyers and the bankers and the private equity folks who work inside of these tall glass hollowed buildings are not the ones who actually engage with the building as an urban object every single day. It's the rest of us, right? It's the non-fancy lawyers who have to look up at this thing that has taken a piece of our blue sky. Mm. And so in exchange for having robbed us of some daylight and some blue sky, the building has a responsibility to be a good citizen, not to those just inside of it, but specifically to those who are not inside of it. And I really connect to that, you know, in a very clear way that these things that we're doing, if they're only satisfying those who enter them, I think you might have, you may not have done your job. You may have executed the sort of task in front of you, but you may not have elevated the project to something better. And I think that's a guiding principle for the work that we do. That is a remarkable statement you just shared that I've never heard that before. And makes perfect sense now that you've articulated it. It's very interesting. If they're just internally focused, then you know what does it mean for the rest of us? Because right. we're the ones looking up at those things, right? You mentioned COVID uh, sort of killing off projects in a second and all that. So post-pandemic, have you seen a change in the way this field is looking at buildings and how we live, work, and play? Well, I mean, I, I will say, you know, we, we definitely, as, as much of our commercial work went the way of the dodo bird real quick in COVID, our residential work spiked. Mm. And, and, and some of that, to be candid, was very, very high-end residential work, which is not necessarily an area that I'm dying to spend the rest of my career in. But I will admit that I was very grateful for that work to show up at a time when we needed it to show up. And it was great for the practice and also a great form of expression in a different way. But I would say even through those mega high-end residential and and not mega high-end, just typical residential work that we do, it is interesting to see our clients have a deeper connection to what we're doing within their homes because they know they're going to be there a hell of a lot more than they used to. 
And so what you want is an engaged client, right? You don't want someone who's checked out. There's nothing worse than like presenting a very nuanced and thoughtful design and them asking if it's like, is that, is that stone? We want more from our clients, right? We want them engaged in our work. I would say that COVID has made our residential clients definitely more mindful, more engaged, more thoughtful, more demanding, more interested. And that's a good thing. And that I appreciate. I would say more systemically or more industry-wide, a lot of the innovative work that we're doing, a lot of this R&D work that we're doing, thinking about how to make buildings work better, smarter, faster, less expensive. That work, I think there's a renewed interest in that because we've seen how fragile the ecosystem is. We've seen how quickly supply chain can decimate a building schedule. We've seen how much HVAC systems, the cooling filtration systems of our buildings take on real meaning when you have an airborne pandemic. So I would say that an industry that may not have been as curious about innovation was given a good kick in the ass to have a little more of an open mind about what the future of the, of the industry is. And that's a good thing for the R&D work that we're doing. So I'll say that some of what we proselytize are falling on fewer deaf ears at the moment. Mm. You know, this thought just came to me, you know, it's remarkable and wonderful that you're your father was a neurologist. And I'll tell you this quick story. I used to, somebody I know, very talented artist, also is double majoring in neuroscience. And her thesis is going to be the impact of art on the brain. Have you ever looked at that in terms of like, oh, to your father, the, the brain, the impact of the brain with the good architecture? Have you looked at those through the cross section or the correlation of those? Two? You know, it's very interesting. I, I haven't, not from a specifically neurological lens, although I will say, this is a bit of a superficial anecdote, but I will say my father, who never really understood what I did for a living, looked at my first, first portfolio when I was in graduate school and it had all the various floor plans and sections. And he looked at that and said, oh, it's like an MRI. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, an MRI kind of does cross-section cuts at three millimeter increments of your brain, right? <laughs> it does. And uh, he, he kind of understood how we discretize a building, right? We cut it up in these plans and these sections and it's not dissimilar to an MRI. But I will say, I mean, there are a few areas, and, and I haven't, to be frank, explored it that deeply, but there are certain actually child psychologists, folks like uh, Donald Winnicott in particular, who was a, a really profound thinker in, in describing a play space and the sort of spatial dynamics that create an opportunity for a child to feel both safe, but also autonomous enough to take risks. And he tells a beautiful story about a baby being in his or her crib and wanting to reach up and kiss the moon that he or she saw outside of the window. And it takes courage for that kid to kind of grab the side of the crib and pull themselves up, you know, with the fear of possibly falling over. Winnicott describes this liminal space of the parents being outside the kid's door, but the door being cracked open so the child can see the light of the parent's bedroom and the noise of the parents, knowing that perhaps should he or she reach to grab the moon and they fall, the parents are close enough to help, but the parents are far enough away that the child can take that risk and feel a little bit like they're on their own and they can step out and try something new. And those kind of subtle, mindful dynamics that come through the development of space play a role in what we do in very subtle ways. I don't think that we've codified it tactically, but I think we are, at least I try to be very mindful of some of those subtle cues. And I think we all know this more intuitively or qualitatively, but you know when a place feels homely, you know when a place feels safe you know, when a place doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. And I think we try, even if it's subtextually, to, to create those environments. And other times, frankly, we try and create provocative environments. Mm -hmm. And we do specific things that are perhaps unnerving, that they destabilize your horizontal datum. So things that established order, we can subtly undo that to create different emotional experiences. Because just like, you know, a great horror director who knows how to manage the silence and the fright, 
An architect too is a choreographer and is moving you through a space and should be in command of your emotional state as you're doing it. You've done so many high profile projects, lots of beautiful places. What are the ones that you're most proud of? You know, buildings are funny things uh, and so are films and TV shows for that matter. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they are, you know, we're not painters, we're not sculptors. We are not the sole practitioner that is laboring over a singular object who pauses and completes their work when they know it's done. We are a design director, a sort of creator of a vision, and we are the steward of the execution of a building, but that building is built by others and, and paid for by others and, and validated legally by others and, and structurally designed by others and mechanically designed by others and so on and so forth. You take my point. It is a team effort at a, at a very broad scale. And what that means is this is my lengthiest and most verbose conditional way of saying not every building is a perfect success, meaning I'm, there's aspects of projects that I'm proud of. Sometimes it's the process that I'm proud of. Sometimes it's the product that I'm proud of. Sometimes it's aspects of the product. Other times I look at a building we designed and it looks like a thousand mistakes frozen in perpetuity. It, it really depends. Um, it also depends on your relationship to the building over time. I think it changes. <laughs> That's my long way of saying that I don't know if I'm necessarily specifically proud of any of them. I think there's aspects of all of them that I think there were victories. You know, I think our building at the World Trade Center, there are victories in what we accomplished there. And there's aspects of what we did specifically at the podium and how we managed this very beautiful metallic screen wall that I think did a lot economically, but also metaphorically to the building that, that is really effective. We're working on the roof right now of the, of the Zaha Hadid condominium over on the High Line doing a pretty exciting installation there. And I'm very proud of the way that we're interacting with the base building architecture and creating something that's both sympathetic, but also new. And I'm really proud of the TV shows that we made over the years. I think explaining the why behind great architecture has been something I'm really happy. I'm really happy people have the opportunity not just to say, it's really tall, it's really crazy looking, it's really cool looking, but rather like, why does it look the way it looks? What is it trying to accomplish? What is it seeking to express? What about its climate, its culture, its context, its ambition formed that building? Just like that Gothic church that Mrs. DeVito told me about when I got to learn about all of the ambitions of the Catholic church in the, in the Renaissance, what were the goals of this given building and how can people have an easier way of relating to those, to those buildings? And so I'm really proud that I think our TV show at times has clearly created the pathway for, at the time, a lot of young people to understand the built environment a little bit differently. I think Mrs. DeVito would be so proud <laughs> because you have a, such a knack for explaining architecture as a teacher. And you could learn a lot just from this conversation, the way you explain things. It can be very intimidating, architecture can be, but you are able to explain it in a way that matters to everyone. Yeah, and I think architects don't do a great job of humanizing this stuff. I mean, I think that was one of the hilarious experiences I had both at graduate school with my professors being brilliant, but at times very obtuse people. And when I would meet all these famous architects who would come on the show and I'd interview them and we'd go look at their buildings all over the world, I was shocked at how I was fighting to get any discernible and digestible way to talk about mm. their building with them. And, and that's okay. You know, I mean, it's why I am oftentimes uh, accompanying my dear friends when they unfortunately find themselves in the hospital because doctors don't always do a great job of communicating with their patients either, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> I agree with that. 
<laughs> like my father was a master diagnostician, but he was he was known more for having a bedside manner that really made a difference in people's lives. Mm. And I'd like to think that, you know, where I fall short as a designer, I think I can make up with it in how I communicate the work that we do. You know, we probably are not designing the most groundbreaking architecture in the world. And I accept that. But I think what we're trying to do is create architecture that that is meaningful and that makes a difference. But also we're communicating the stories of our work in a way that I think broadens the tent, that makes it more available for people who are not already within the tent of architectural understanding and education. And that's important to me. For no other reason, I, I don't want to be alone. You know, I don't want to be alone with this knowledge. And architects are not always the best uh, cocktail party guests. So it's good to be able to talk about this stuff. with them. <laughs> it's great. Is there a topic in this field that is not getting enough attention that you want to talk more about? I, I do think while it's very interesting for the people in construction to talk about offsite prefabrication and modular, and I know modular has been a sort of a buzzword for a long time, but it's not really a buzzword within the profession of architecture and design. I think it's unfortunately seen as a kind of relegation of our creative activities over to a manufacturer, as if to standardize things or to seek technology to make things more efficient would in some way eat into our scope or eat into our relevance at the table. And to that, I would say, I think architects are already at times pretty irrelevant at the table or they can be made that way. And our designs can be undone by owners and contractors very quickly. And our capacity to defend and protect the integrity of our designs, I have found to be at times very limited. And so I have found, at least from my personal professional experience, that by engaging in this kind of industry-wide process-based thinking, I have a more significant seat at the table. because I'm not just the guy figuring out the design, but I'm also the guy figuring out how it's going to be built and how we can build it better. And I think that is a topic that's worth expanding into the architectural academic discourse where right now it's not really particularly in vogue. Mm -hmm. And we can continue to do the things we've always done before, but there aren't a lot of architects, in my opinion, who are particularly successful at business, who are able to replicate their work, except for like a few Starka tech groups that, that really kick ass all over the globe. But for the most part, there's too many great designers and really smart people struggling too much. I think expanding our frame of reference into fabrication, manufacturing, technology, innovation would expand the utility of the architect. And at least for me, I'm doing it out of desperation. I'm doing it because I can't sit in the seat that's been made for me because it's not a big enough seat. And so I'm trying to change that because the work that we're doing deserves it. And that's what we want to do. But I, I don't think I'm alone in that space. I don't think I'm the only architect who says like, really, I'm that well-trained to be put into this small a box? You're doing something about it and lots of big things about it. So I think that's the big difference here. So speaking of doing things, is there something else in the f near future that you're going to be launching into in addition to all, everything that you're doing? In small ways, we're going to be launching our relaunching our website and relaunching our, our brand a little bit, which will be telling some of these stories and sort of unpacking some of this industry-wide R&D work that we do most of the times behind closed doors. And largely we do it that way because it's you know, it's financed by big industry partners and it's not the sort of thing you publish on a regular basis, but we will be sharing some of that work a little more broadly soon. And, you know, God willing, the remainder of our buildings continue to get designed and built and that happens. But uh, that's really it. There's no big, big announcement or anything. It's just, frankly, us going to work every day, trying to do good work and continue to advance the profession and advance the work that we do. I personally would like to have you have another TV show. I think that would be fabulous. 
build it bigger and it. But we should have another show. I appreciate that. You know, we've looked for a while. There have been a few opportunities. I think the challenge is, and this is just the practical reality of life, is that being on the road 10 months a year, doing 10 to 15 episodes, traveling internationally almost full time is an amazing way to spend time. It really is. It's a challenging way to also build a business, especially when the buildings you're designing start to increase in scale. You know, there's a certain level of engagement and stewardship that really is required, and you can't do it all by Slack. And so, you know, I'd like to find a way to to start to do a little more TV and still be able to keep my butt in New York and manage the practice the way I do. I haven't really found that yet, and so that's why there's been these other expressions, these other smaller film projects that I do that keep the passion going without necessarily mm. co-opting eighty to ninety percent of my time. But we'll see. We'll see. Maybe this podcast will be heard by the, the producer who's just waiting to find a New York-based host. You never know. You never know. We reach many people, so you just never know. Final question is, what would you give a young person any advice if they said, yeah, I want to go into architecture? What would you say to them? I overheard a piece of advice from a very famous architect, a guy named Peter Eisenman, who I actually did two episodes of my show about. He's a brilliant but cantankerous soul. And he said something which I don't agree with. He said, if you can imagine yourself doing anything else, don't be an architect. You know, that was his somewhat passive aggressive way of saying, this is super hard. It's going to be an uphill battle unless you're super awesome and you're willing to make the sacrifice, don't do it. And obviously the same can be said about other high risk careers like being an actor or, or something like that, right? I think I would say, I would soften that position slightly. I would say to a young person who's interested in design, I would say pay really close attention to what makes you comfortable and uncomfortable with the process. It's really easy to walk into an epic museum in Spain or, or the Guggenheim Museum on the Upper East Side and see great architecture and say, yeah, I love great architecture. But you may not spend your career doing those projects. So what about the process of taking an idea from conception to reality gets you excited? And what about the process makes you frustrated? And pay attention to how you feel. Listen to yourself as you, as you, you know, even if you're in a design class in school and you're just taking an idea and making a physical model out of wood or styrofoam or something. Pay attention to what part of that process makes you happy and do the things that I didn't do, frankly, and look to identify where those things show up in the practice. Because you might say to yourself, you know what? I just love the ideation part. I love the conceptual design part. And then there's maybe a world in which you want to be a video game designer where you are not constrained by gravity and you want to do things that are faster and have a much more uh, front-loaded experience. Maybe you're someone who just is sick of being at their desk all the time and actually loves being in the shop or being in the field and seeing things come together and solving those problems. Well, then maybe a kind of architecture that happens quickly, like residential architecture is right for you. Maybe you're someone who's really good at conflict resolution and you can sit in a room with a bunch of people saying different things and find the path forward. And then a kind of like design leadership role could be good for you. But I, get, I just want to say that the design education as we have it today in America, whether it's architecture or sculpture, or industrial design or filmmaking presupposes that you are going to be the head of the firm, the director of the film, the owner of the practice. And there are not that many owners of practices, mm, right? Exactly. There's a lot of different people playing different roles in the process to make these things come to pass. So you want to explore those experiences because the tone and the vibe of executing projects, if you're a video game designer versus that of a skyscraper designer versus that of a shoe designer are very different. It's not the same. And they scratch different itches. They move at different speeds. They have different constraints and criteria. All of those specificities are going to basically impact the way in which your life and your career are organized. 
So I would encourage folks to think about what makes them happy. Is it the speed? Is it the rigor? Is it the precision? Is it the reveal? Is it the craft? Is it the ideation? Is it the computer? Is it the drawing? Whatever it is, there's bits of it in all of it, but be specific and be curious about what makes you interested. Outstanding advice. Very thorough. I think it's, it applies to not just architecture, but in many, many fields. I thank you for that. Absolutely. Danny, this has gone by so fast. This was one of the most fascinating conversations. I really didn't think we would be touching on so many subjects on architecture. It is incredible how you look at this. We did it. This is incredible. Thank you so much for your time today. This was an incredibly fun conversation. My pleasure. This was really fun. It is not, it's not often that you get to both track your trajectory and really think about what you're doing in the day that you're in and to appreciate the past and the prologue that led you to where you are and how it plays a role in that work. And so oh my God. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much. 